1: welcome to the wired to hunt podcast your home for deer hunting news stories and strategies and now your host mark kenyon
0: welcome to the wired to hunt podcast i'm your host mark kenyon and this is episode number 104 today in the show we're joined by field and streams hunting editor will brantley to talk kentucky deer hunting and much more morning, afternoon, or evening, and welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast, brought to you by Sitka Gear. And today, as I just mentioned, we've got a great guest joining us as Mr. Will Brantley, a terrific deer hunter and the hunting editor over at Field and Stream, is with us. And we're going to be talking about his experiences deer hunting in Kentucky and a number of the different strategies and tactics that have worked from there, as well as some of the things he's learned from other hunters across the country as part of his job at Field and Stream. It's going to be a great chat, but before we get to that, in other news, my co-host Dan Johnson is not with me today, as he's out of town, I think, for a basket weaving conference, so it's going to be just me and Will, but before we get that interview off and running, I want to give a quick plug for my other podcast, the 100% Wild Podcast. If you haven't already checked it out and subscribed, I'd really encourage you to do so. If you haven't heard of it yet, it's my new joint collaboration with Drury Outdoors in which myself, Matt Drury, and a great guest each week like Mark or Terry Drury or other DOD team members answer your specific hunting questions. Our first three episodes have tackled turkey hunting, balancing hunting with family time, and self-filming your hunt, so be sure to give those a listen and please subscribe. And now, quickly... Before we give Will a call, we do need to pause briefly for a word from our partners at Sitka Gear, who helped make this podcast possible. And today we're continuing our series of Sitka stories, this one coming from Chad Bell of Louisiana, who a handful of years ago headed up to Illinois for his second year of Midwestern deer hunting. And on this specific day, he snuck into a stand in the afternoon, and then soon spotted one of those famed Midwestern bucks raking a tree in the distance, and then unbelievably washed as it walked almost on a string right to the base of his tree. The buck stopped. He sniffed at the ground right under Chad's stand and then looked up. He stared for a while, but couldn't lock on anything. So he looked down again, sniffed some more, and then looked up again. Chad picks up his story right there, describing what that moment felt like.
2: It was extremely intense. Um, in fact, being that that was only the the second year that I had actually taken bow hunting back up. And at that point I had never killed a, a a buck with a bow. Um, all my animals over the years of my hunting had all been killed with a gun other than some does that I had killed with a bow, but I'd never taken a buck with my bow. So, you know, I was, you know, I was all the thoughts going through my head of, is this a deer that I want to shoot? Um, you know, is it, is he tag worthy? You know, my buddies. Gonna, you know, going to be excited for me if I shoot this deer. Um, but the intensity of that moment, I think it was just everything racing through my mind and to feel like I was so pinned down, but I was so close, you know, and I think that's what we really crave as whitetail bow hunters is getting close to those animals and and being able to deceive them. But whether we, you know, tag them, you know, put a tag on them or not, is to be able to get so close and and watch them in their environment and and see how they react and learn from the the things that they do as they're trying to, you know, find us and figure out what that is. Um, It was absolutely intense. And, uh, you know, I just, you know, just my brain was racing. Am I going to draw this bow back? If I decide to, is he going to give me the opportunity to get my bow drawn? Um, Am I going to be able to make the shot? Am I going to get busted by these other deer in the fields? You know, there were just several things going through my mind, but it was just a a thrilling experience.
0: That feeling right there, that is what it's all about. And this was a Sitka story, as Chad was wearing the Sitka Fanatic jacket and bibs on that hunt. If you'd like to learn more about Sitka, you can visit sitkagear.com. And now, let's get back to the show and give Will Brantley a call. All right, with us now on the line is Will Brantley. Welcome to the show, Will.
3: Thanks, Mark. Appreciate it.
0: Yeah. I'm excited to get to spend some time with you here and catch up. It's been a little bit it's been a little bit of time. So, so how you been?
3: Oh, I've been good, man. It's uh oh, what is it now? Late May. Uh, mm-hmm. I'm not even sure of the exact date. I just, uh, <laughs> just got back from a week in Nebraska turkey hunting been turkey hunting like crazy around here in kentucky and tennessee before that and down in florida before that So i'm kind of a kind of a turkey nut um but uh been a been a good spring and kind of winding down and shifting gears and man i've been seeing a few uh few bucks running around with some little velvet nubs and i don't know it's kind of uh kind of got the wheels turning for this fall you know what i mean mm-hmm.
0: that's exciting when, when you finally start seeing those velvet antlers it just gets me like Really, the blood starts pumping once these early yeah. summer months arrive.
3: Yeah, for sure.
0: H- how'd the turkey hunting go,
3: man? I've had a good season. I've had a really good season. Um, we uh, had a good good start in Florida. Killed a couple of birds down there. Um, took uh, took a buddy of mine, took his little boy here in Kentucky during the uh, during the youth season. Got to see him kill his first turkey. Um, killed my two Kentucky birds, killed a Tennessee bird, um, killed a few birds in Nebraska, my wife killed a bird, so we, we, we had a pretty outstanding (laughs) season. We've got a lot of turkey meat in the freezer. Uh, And I actually had a, had a big old plate of fried nuggets last night.
0: Nice. That's funny. That's exactly what I had for dinner too. It's that time of year.
3: There there you go. Yep, absolutely.
0: (laughs) That's awesome. So, so I guess before we get too much further, Will, for those that aren't familiar with who you are, can you just share with our audience a little bit of your background and what you're doing today with Field and Stream?
3: Yeah, yeah. Well, I am uh, I'm Field and Stream's hunting editor. Um, it's hard for me to say hunting with a G. You know what I mean? I just, just <laughs> want to say hunting editor, but nope, uh, nope. <laughs> it's just, just kind of a product of where I'm from, I guess. But uh, yeah, I'm uh, I'm the hunting editor, and have uh, have have been in that position for. Uh, Oh, a little more than a year now um, was a regular contributor freelancer to field and stream for a number of years before that um, and uh, during uh, during those years before that I was also a web editor for uh, for Realtree Camouflage um, handled all of their website content done a lot of freelancing over the years Mark uh, for a lot of different magazines I kind of got my start in this business as uh as an intern with Outdoor Life which of course is uh Field and Streams sister but uh it's also somewhat rival publication um you know they uh, they share an office in New York uh you know of course the the staffs of both magazines are, are you know good friends but uh, but it's a good friendly competition but yeah that's that's where I got started actually was uh was on the Outdoor Life side and and did some freelancing for Outdoor Life for a number of years and uh just kind of gradually uh gradually moved over to the field and stream side, which is, uh, which is where I am today. Um, so far as my hunting background, uh, I, I'm a native of Western Kentucky. I grew up in, uh, uh, in a little town called St. Charles, Kentucky, which is pretty close to Dawson Springs, Kentucky, neither one of which are, are very big. St. Charles got a ta- uh, population of, oh, I think it was 453 last time I was home. And, uh, man there was just a lot of critters around there <laughs> um hunting and fishing was uh was my thing as a kid I, I squirrel hunted every day after school um deer hunted you know i think i killed my first deer when i was 10 hunting with my dad started bow hunting when i was uh oh i don't know sixth or seventh grade and uh turkey hunting about that same time and Man, that's all I ever did growing up. To be honest with you, I didn't. I uh, didn't play many sports, um, and I don't want to say I was the weird kid that kept quiet in class. I had, you know, I had plenty of friends, <laughs> but uh, but man, I just I, I didn't go to a lot of parties or anything like that. I was always hunting or fishing, um, doing something out in the woods. That was just always my thing. And then, uh, you know, I, I always liked to write. Um, I was always really intrigued with coming home uh and hanging around the adults uh you know my dad and and all his buddies they all hunted and i just loved sitting there listening to those guys tell their stories at the end of a hunt and i I was really fascinated by the details that the guys who really knew their stuff the details that they could that they could put into that and that you know and I, i realized that that's what made a story come together and that part of it Struck me from an early age. I liked to be a part of it. I started keeping a hunting journal when I was a kid, and uh, just started writing things down. And uh, as I got into high school, I started thinking, you know, what I would really like to do with my life is work for a hunting and fishing magazine. So I majored in journalism, uh, went to Murray State University, and had a few lucky breaks, and here I am.
0: Well, I'm glad uh, I'm glad things worked out for you and, and got you into this industry because I need to publicly thank you. Well, you were one of the first people who ever gave me advice when it comes to writing in the outdoor industry and in submitting freelance articles and everything so i'm glad that you had a head start in it so you could give me a little bit of advice too because it, it certainly <laughs> helped
3: <laughs> well man you know it, advice never hurts and uh you know it usually comes uh usually comes for free i guess unless you're talking to a lawyer and i can make lawyer jokes my dad's a lawyer <laughs> um but uh you know, man, I, I wouldn't have uh, I wouldn't have gotten to where I was with uh, without some good advice. But you know, you've uh, you've got the talent and the knowledge too, and it takes more than advice to uh, to make it. So I appreciate um, saying that. You, you've done really well.
0: I'm kind of curious. You know, as you talked about the fact that you developed this love for writing early on, listening to other folks and their hunting stories and stuff. As I think about myself, I definitely fall into that same camp. But I also became a voracious reader. Are you? Do you also love Reading about hunting and things like that too, or you just like sharing your own stories?
3: Man, I do read a lot. Um, I used to read uh, outdoor magazines. Man, I would have stacks and stacks and stacks of them. Um, read all kinds of them. Had you know a few authors that I really liked uh, as I was kind of getting into the business. Um, and the same thing went for you know outdoor television. Um, well, it really wasn't it wasn't Outdoor Channel when I was coming up. It was uh, you know there were some uh, you know you'd go to the go to Walmart and get you some hunting tapes and uh, mm-hmm. some DVDs. You know the Monster Bucks videos and things like that. And man, I, I grew up watching those things. Um, and uh, you know I guess kind of the you know outdoor television started getting really popular just about the time that you know that I was uh, growing up and, and starting to think about, you know, this is, is, my career. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I, yeah, I, I read a lot. Um, I probably don't read as many other outdoor magazines, uh, now as I once did mainly just because, you know, how it is you're, you're working on, on this stuff all day. And at the end mm-hmm. of the day, kind of want to read something different. So, what I do like to read um i was I was a journalism major in college, but i was a uh I was a creative writing minor um, I do like to read some fiction whenever I had the time for it I really like southern literature um, and uh you know there's a few uh, few guys that i that I really like to read when i'm fortunate enough to get the time and actually um Man, I'm one of those guys that when I'm sitting in the deer stand, I always have a book with me. (laughs) People can say what they want. Well, you're reading a book, you're not paying attention. and Maybe. I I might have spooked two deer in my lifetime reading a book, uh, or had a couple of deer come up and surprise me by reading a book, but... What I usually tell guys whenever they bring that up, I'm like, well, you know what? When I'm reading a book, I'm sitting there very still, mm-hmm. um with a book in my lap, and I'm not moving, and it keeps me in the tree longer. And exactly. as you well know, man, that is uh that is everything. Um, so true for deer hunting is is being in that damn tree. And so you know, <laughs> if a book helps me stay in the tree or stay in the blind, uh you know what? That's uh, that's a chance I'm willing to take, and, so, and I read all the time.
0: Yeah, I, I've got a lot of friends that think I'm crazy during the rut. You know, I'm one of the guys that really likes to hunt all day, day after day after day, and my my secret is no secret. It's just I, I read when I'm out there. It just keeps yeah. your mind going, keeps you in it, and uh, like you said, yeah, there maybe there's a small chance that you might spook something or you might not be 100% focused the entire time, but it's heck of a lot better than if you're on the couch. So. Oh, yeah, yeah. So you're hunting in Kentucky a lot of the time. Are you hunting a number of other states for whitetails, too, or are you spending most of your deer season right at home?
3: You know what, man? I travel all over the country uh, to turkey hunt and to waterfowl hunt and to hunt other critters. I go out west and hunt some, uh, hunt antelope and elk and mule deer, and I, I've, I've been fortunate to travel to hunt a lot of things. Um, but when it comes to my deer season, um it's hard to convince me to leave home now I am I am I have hunted some other states I've hunted hunted Texas and uh and of course I'm right here on the Tennessee line I don't know if you know that but I'm about 10 minutes from the Tennessee line so I do have some places in Tennessee that I hunt um so you know yeah I will travel a little bit but man like um just going to shoot a big buck is not the part of deer season that gets me like you know, that, that I really anticipate, like what I really enjoy, uh, is property management and seeing that come to fruition and, you know, kind of doing my own thing. Mm Um, you know, we own, I'm fortunate enough that, uh, I co-own, along with my dad, my wife, and my brother, the uh, the farm that I grew up hunting um, in uh, in Caldwell County, Kentucky. Um, it's about 120 acres, and uh, get to do a lot of work there. And then Michelle and I also own another 70 acres down here in Callaway County, right next to Kentucky Lake, um, that we bought a few years ago. Well, we bought it in two chunks over the years. And man, honestly, I get as much enjoyment out of working on those properties throughout the summer and you know scouting the things and hanging my trail cameras and just knowing that you know when it when the sun starts going down my food pot's going to be full of deer uh and knowing that you know (laughs) michelle or my brother or my dad or a friend you know if they're out there hunting that they're going to be seeing deer and me too yeah you know definitely i definitely like to sit there and hunt Um, i don't want to take that away from and i'm going out there to kill a deer for sure but uh, but the point is um, between traveling to maybe a better place where I've got a better chance of killing a big buck or staying here at home and shooting, you know, a smaller buck or even a couple of does that, you know, I feel like I've put in my time for, that's kind of what does it for me during deer season. So I like to travel for other stuff. I kind
2: of like to stay home to deer
0: hunt. When it comes to quality deer, though, these days it's hard to find another state other than a couple of those most hyped that are getting a whole lot more press, positive press, than Kentucky has been over the last five years or so. I mean, there's a lot of great deer coming out of there, and so many people have been kind of realizing this recently. What what is making Kentucky such a high quality place to hunt these days?
3: Well, I you know I think there's uh, I think there are a number of things from a you know from kind of a macro management perspective. Um, we have been a one buck limit state uh, for well. It, it, my entire hunting career. Um, I there may have been a time, you know, a few decades ago I think where maybe you could kill two bucks. But um, you know, and there are a few opportunities, you know, different quota hunts and things in the state where you can still kill two deer, but for the most part we're a one buck state. We've always been the culture of a one buck state and and uh man it's um it's just one of those things. A guy knows he can only kill one deer, he usually likes to make sure it's a, a pretty good one. Um so we've got that going for us um, we've had you know western kentucky in particular where i am is uh... is a pretty agriculture heavy uh... you know people think of kentucky and they think of the the hills and hollers of eastern kentucky you know where all the mountains are and certainly pretty country out there but there's not many deer that live there all the deer are kind of in central and western kentucky and it's a. Uh, you know around here it's uh people are surprised when they you know if they've never seen it it's a it's a heavy agriculture region um you know with uh with a lot of row crops soybeans and, and corn uh that you know obviously puts a lot of lot of deer food on the ground but you know I think one of the ways that we differ in kind of some uh you know some of the midwestern states uh that you know that that have more ag than us is that, you know, I think on average we have a little more cover. Um, you know, we've got a longer growing season. We have some bigger blocks of timber. Um, you know, people people log their timber around here, and our woods are just thick. Um, we have just this abundance of natural browse uh, that, that's growing for a long time. Uh, and it's and it's around all these crop fields, and, you know, that's just, that's just good deer habitat. I mean, you know how important natural browse is to, a, you know, to a deer herd year-round health, and we have a lot of that. And so, you know, you combine all that, and, and some of our agricultural practices have changed over the years, you know, especially when you talk about the last, you know, five years, ten years. You know, once upon a time, Kentucky was a was a pretty big dairy state, a pretty big uh, tobacco state, and you know those things aren't you know aren't as prevalent now. And so now those fields that you once had in in dairy or tobacco, uh, they're either in soybeans or corn, or farmers have just let them go. You know, and they've become all grown up and nasty and tangled, and uh, man, that's just uh, that's just a recipe for growing deer. Um, you know, so you you've got those. You know, those fundamental habitat things, you know, in place uh, to to have a lot of deer and to give them the nutrition and the habitat they need to, to get big and grow and got the regulations that keep people from, from killing a bunch of little bitty bucks. And then you've also got some other mechanisms in place that, you know, let's be honest, uh, make it a little bit easier to kill a big deer. We've got a two-week rifle season, or, you know, some parts of the state, I think, uh, I think it's three-week rifle season. Wow. Uh, during the rut, um, you know, comes in the, the second week, you know, the second – Saturday in November I think is the, is a the traditional opener. Don't quote me on that absolutely, but uh, I'd want I'd want to look it up on uh you know on the Fish and Wildlife website, but it it's right around that second week in November and stays in usually till about Thanksgiving. And uh and you know when those bucks are out chasing does and you're sitting there with a high powered rifle, it's uh, it's a little bit easier to kill them. We've also um, we've got a very early bow season that opens the first Saturday in September. And uh, typically for the first week of bow season, our big deer, uh, you know, they're in velvet. And they're very, uh, very easy to pattern at that time of year. Uh, If you've ever hunted velvet bucks, bachelor bucks, you know that. And, you know, the other reality, not to sugarcoat things, is we can pour corn out on the ground and hunt right over it. And, man, you can kill a big deer at that time of year uh, that is in full velvet, really, regardless of your feelings uh, toward baiting deer. It's, uh, It's just an effective way to kill them. And, you know, a lot of guys are, are killing some really huge deer around here that first week in September. That The success rate is, is pretty high, and I think you'll find that some of our biggest deer season after season are killed during that first week, and it's guys that have got them patterned on a corn pile or, you know, a corn pile off of a, off of a soybean field or a food plot or something like that. Mm-hmm.
0: Do, have you had much success in that early time period yourself?
3: Yeah, sure have sure have uh my uh my biggest bow kill deer was uh i think i killed him oh i don't know september 15th something like that my wife's killed a couple of pretty nice full velvet deer and i mean you know we're not uh i i'm not one of these guys that you know is uh has got a 140 minimum or anything like that you know i i like to I like to target three and a half year old plus deer. Um, you know, like I say, I'm managing pretty pretty small acreage, and uh, if I can get one that that's pretty nice and gets my heart rate going, I'm probably going to shoot him. So, but uh, but we killed it. we killed a lot of good deer at that time of year. Probably. Uh, you know, between that week and the first week, you know, we don't do a lot of gun hunting. We're mainly bow hunters. Um, I did shoot one with a gun last year, but, uh, you know, between that week and the first week in November, are the, those are my two favorite weeks of, uh, yeah. of deer season for sure.
0: So so I, I have actually never been able to hunt that early. Uh all the states all the states I've always hunted have always been that kind of either late September or early October opener. Um, but this year for the first time, I'm going to be going to Montana actually for their opener. So that's like September 3rd. So I'll finally have a chance at one of those velvet bucks. But it's a topic we actually haven't talked about a whole lot on the show ever. Could you kind of walk us through what your game plan is for that super early season, you know, early September hunting? You know, how are you patterning these bucks and then getting a shot yeah. at one? And And let's I guess whether you use bait or not, I guess tell us however it is you're doing it.
3: Yeah, yeah. Well, whether you use bait or not, I mean, um, what what I like about bait, and I and I do use bait. I mean, I've written about that. Um, you know, people don't like it. That's that's fine. That's uh, that's up to them. They don't have to use it. But, um, you know, it's uh, it's one of those things that I will use it in conjunction with the, with all the food plot work that I've done all summer, and what I use it for is to position that deer in a spot that is advantageous for me to hunt. So, you know, so that I'm not sitting right over the top of one of my food plots and blowing deer out of there whenever I go in. And I start kind of creating my ambush uh, really next month. Um, You know, I I have, you know, food plots that, uh, you know, on our places that traditionally I I know there's going to be a bachelor group of bucks using that thing. Uh, during the summer. Um, I'll have, you know, mineral licks just off the edges of those food plots and, and start kind of, you know, taking some inventory and getting pictures. And then what I want to do is I like to, uh, you know, I like to set my, you know, set my bait site uh, in such a way so that um, it's in a spot to where I can I can get to my stand and get out of my stand without running all the deer out of the food plot. So, you know, usually, it's going to be in a spot where you know, I, and I'll set several, obviously, for different wind directions. But I'll set them so that, given that wind direction, uh, I can sneak right in and and uh, you know see that deer come out in the food plot. And, and my hope is that you know, yeah, once he comes out, he's going to work his way to that bait site, and I can kill him. So um, that's that's kind of one of the ways I do it. We hunt with a lot of uh, a lot of pop up ground blinds like that. And what I like to do is I like to set them kind of right on the the crest of a hill, right next to one of my food plots, and kind of set my bait site just down from the crest of that hill so that, um, you know, I'm watching the food plot, I can get deer up on the bait if I don't get a deer that I want to shoot. I can slip out of that ground line and immediately have a hill between myself and the deer, and then, of course, I'm playing the wind, and, man, I can... I can slip out of a field and be within bow range of deer and get out of there without them knowing I'm there and that's that's what I want and it takes a couple of years of kind of dialing into a spot to be able to to figure that out but that's you know that's ultimately the goal you know the other thing too is I mean I you know I do knock on some doors and I've got permission to hunt some uh, you know some farms where you know it's big crop fields and things and uh, you know I, I don't bait those areas and I don't want to give the impression that the only way you can kill an early season deer is over bait. It's, it's certainly not. It's just a it's a good tool to have if you're hunting a you know a small property. Um, but I, you know, I've probably honestly killed more early season bucks just by glassing them uh, of an evening, uh, you know, on big soybean fields or, or big you know hay fields uh, than I have by setting bait. And and what I like to do then. You know, the the baiting process on my farm, it's kind of an all-summer thing of, you know, kind of getting them conditioned to come into that spot and, and taking trail camera pictures of them. But if I'm, you know, scouting, you know, just kind of traditional farm country, I like to go out. I mean, trail cameras are great, but, man, there's no substitute for going out in the evenings with a pair of binoculars and hiding in the fence row and just watching that field and watching it come to life, you know, during that last hour of daylight. And, uh, you know, I like to see a bachelor group of bucks, and, you know, they don't, um, a lot of people think, you know, well, if a group of bucks comes out on this trail this night, they're going to use that trail all the time, and in my experience, I mean, they might use the same trail two nights in a row, but typically, man, they're going to use one of half a dozen trails within a, you know, 200-yard radius Mm -hmm. of that part of the field to come out, and, and, you know, at that point, it just kind of comes down to luck, and you just really... It takes, you know, I, I like to glass a group of bucks for a week and just kind of figure out, like, the the area uh, that uh, not only where they like to come out but the area of the field where they like to end up. And you'll find that a, a group of bucks will, while they might use a different trail to come out in the field, they'll almost always end up in the same area of the field for two or three nights. And I don't know if it's because that part of the field has sweeter beans or whatever it is. But if you can find that, that spot of the field that the deer are going to, it kind of gives you the same advantage of, of setting a bait pile and that you can you can hunt that spot, you know, and kind of set up so that the deer are coming to you rather than you're setting up, you know, 50 yards from where they might be bedded down. You know what I'm saying?
0: That's a great point. So, in, in that kind of situation where you're glassing a field, trying to figure out where these deer are coming out of and where they're going to, and it sounds like in this type of situation you wouldn't already have a stand up. What's your game plan for getting in there and getting a stand hung? Are you, you know, is that something you're hanging it that day and hunting it right away, or do you try to get in there and, and wait a week, or how? And, and what's your kind of plan for that?
3: Um, I like to hunt out of a climbing stand. Um, we've got a lot of tall, straight timber around here. As uh, well, you've kind of got that all over the south. I know you guys in the Midwest, y'all, uh, y'all like your hang on stands, and, and I like hang on stands too. <laughs> But, uh, man, a climbing stand, I can get in there, I uh, can carry it in on my back. And, you know, that's that's what I'm doing a lot of the times whenever I'm glassing at those deers. I'm looking at those field edge trees and saying, okay, that one's tall and it's straight. It doesn't have a bunch of limbs that i got to cut to be able to climb it. I can get up there 20 feet and, uh, you know, I know I can get a stand in that tree. And, man, if I can't, um, honestly, it is so thick and green around here, uh, the first part of September. I've shot a lot of deer just bringing in a little fold-out, you know, dove stool and sitting on the ground right there in a fence row and just sit
0: still. So, any advice for hunting from a ground blind, just in general, whether it be early season or later in the year, uh, that's something that, especially now with the advent of these, you know, easy to collapse portable ground blinds, more and more people are finding these things to be pretty useful. Whether it be Mm -hmm. with that or just sitting in a stool, what what helps you make sure that happens happens the right way?
3: Well, sitting in a stool, I mean, I I think it's um, a lot of guys, you know, really kind of overcomplicate things. I mean, um, you sit out there turkey hunting, for example, you're in full camo, you're sitting still. I mean, how many deer have you had walk within bow range of? You never know you were there. Um, It's one of those things that, yeah, playing the wind is at a premium. Um, But what I like to do is kind of sit where I've got good cover at my back, and then I like to sit where I've got a big tree, you know, in front of me, maybe, you know, five or six feet away. I don't want it to be so close that, like, my knocked arrow is going to bump against it, but I do like it to be right there. And that way, uh, when deer come out, you know, especially the does and little bucks, and I may not be shooting that afternoon, uh, you know, you can kind of lean behind that tree. And, you know, just, you know, and and honestly, kind of move, you're moving around a little bit as they're out there to keep that tree between you and them. And then it is a great tool for when you do have a deer that you want to shoot, when he's coming out, when he walks behind that tree, when you can't see his eye, he cannot see you. And you can draw back, and you can kill him as soon as he steps out of the spot. I've done it a bunch of times. It's the way I grew up deer hunting. (laughs) Um, So... That works, and a lot of guys don't have the confidence to do that because you know they think they have to be in a blind or they have to be twenty feet up in a tree. And the fact is, people killed a lot of deer like that for a long time, and it and it you know they, they hadn't figured it out yet. So <laughs> it does still work, um, you know for uh, you know for hunting the the places on our farms that you know where we know we're going to. You know, yeah, I, I definitely like to set a pop up blind. Um, you know, I like to set it at least a month in advance of season, if not more. Um, I do brush them in a little bit, and I'll freshen that brush, you know, throughout the year. And I, I think probably my biggest tips for uh, for pop up blinds is, you know, set them in an area. You know, they, they're they're going to have a zipper door on one side of it, or, or some type of door. It's usually a zipper. You know, set it in an area so that when you step out of that door, you're immediately in cover, and you can and you can get away. Um, You know, and once it's set, man, um, get in there and look at the shooting windows that you're going to want to have open, and open those the day that you set it. Leave everything else shut, and don't get tempted to to open them up. You know, you can definitely kind of peer around them and look and see, you know, watch for deer coming and stuff like that. But if you can't shoot out of that window, you need to leave it shut. Um, The darker that you have it inside that blind, the better it is. Uh, and then, you know, like I say, the windows that you want to shoot out of, leave them open the entire year. Because if you look at a ground blind, man, you can, you can look at a pop-up ground blind from 300 yards away with a pair of binoculars. And if it's all closed up, it looks, you know, like a big stump. If you open that window, it's got a huge black hole in it that you can see without binoculars. And man, I, you leave a blind closed all season and then you get in there to hunt it the first night and you open it up, deer absolutely notice that. There's no doubt in my mind and, you know, hunting guides and stuff that I've talked to that use a lot of ground blinds, I'll tell you the same thing. Open your shooting windows the day you set it and don't ever close them.
0: <laughs> Makes a lot of sense. Keep it, keep it consistent so they get used to it. Mm-hmm. Now, you you mentioned that the first week of September and then the first week of November are typically your best week's around your property there. So we've talked about what you're doing in September. What are you guys doing that first week in November that's leading to all that success?
3: Well, you know, we, um, I mentioned earlier that, uh, you know, we're not really what I would call. And when I say we, I'm, I'm really talking about my wife, Michelle and I, she's a very serious bow hunter as well. And, uh, she and I are, you know, each other's primary hunting buddy. Um, we, uh, uh, although we don't get to hunt together a whole lot, we've got a two-year-old son, and um, it kind of limits our time together in the field. Um, you know, we we do kind of really we switch back and forth. I babysit one night, and she hunts, and then we swap it up the next <laughs> night. So nice,
0: um,
3: but uh, you know. Our, our strategy, you know, we're, like I say, we're, we're not big, you know, trophy hunters. Yeah, definitely. If we've got a good buck, we'll we'll try to kill him and and uh, hold off. But you know, during uh, during you know, kind of the latter part of September and through October, we eat a whole lot of deer meat, man. Um, we uh, we try not to eat a whole lot of store bought stuff, so we're we're shooting a lot of those. We're trying to get those in the freezer, um, and then about oh I don't know about October fifteenth, we quit shooting those, and the reason for that. Uh, is I like to get groups of, uh, you know, just family groups of does. You know, two or three big does, a few fawns. Um, I like to get them really comfortable um, and get them coming to a food source. And and if I can keep from going in there and bothering them, hunting them at all, I will. You know, a lot of guys are really starting to really starting to try to pattern a buck that time of year. And yeah, I want to know about pictures of bucks too, but. I'm really worried, you know, not worried, but really focused on where those does are going to be. And I want to get several groups of does, you know, habituated to, to certain areas. And once I learn where those does are, before the, you know, before the peak breeding and all that, when the bucks first start chasing, man, those areas where those groups of does are using every day, before they've been harassed and run out of the fields, that's where you're going to kill a good deer. Uh, that's where you're going to kill those first few deer that are out cruising, and that's that's kind of our strategy. And again, I you know I'm kind of speaking for small properties and things. You know, when if I'm hunting somewhere else, you know, yeah, I'm looking for funnels and things to try to you know kind of maximize all that deer movement traffic. But you know, that first week in November, that has been my highest odds you know hunt is finding those groups of does and and really hunting them. And just waiting because you can guarantee that they're going to attract, you know, whatever good bucks are in the area. Those bucks are going to come by and check that stuff. And just like you said earlier, that's the time of year, uh, to me, that I want to be on the stand as long as I can. You know, all-day hunts are great that time of year.
0: Yeah, now where those does are hanging out, are you talking about... Their bedding areas—they're going to be in most of the time during the day. Or are you focusing on where they're I, feeding?
3: I, or? I'm still focused on the food uh, a whole lot. Um, now, the uh, you know the properties that, that I manage—you know—I manage for a lot of old field habitats. So, um, you know, a lot of the times, uh, the areas that I'm hunting are are you know they are food plots. They are kind of primary feeding areas, but they are immediately adjacent to this really nice thick old field bedding cover and so you know in a lot of ways like the 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 bedding areas and the feeding areas are really kind of one and the same you know what i mean i mean the the deer just those groups of does live right there and they might bed 50 or 100 yards off of that plot but i know that they're in that area and i'm going to sit up for them on the food sources because that is the best way for me to keep from running them out uh and that is the spot where i know uh you know of a morning and especially in the evenings I know I'm going to see them and you know the more times you see them the more likely you know you are to see them when they've got a buck chasing them so give you a, give you a classic example man uh one of our food plots that uh, that I had going last year about a half acre plot I, I did just that we started getting a a big group of does that was using that thing in uh, in October and I just kept tabs on them I did not hunt them Um, We we didn't mess with those deer. Just kept getting them on trail camera. Kept getting them on trail camera. We're getting a few nighttime pictures of bucks, but man, these does were, you know, they were in there at night. Then you know, usually about seven thirty, eight o'clock in the morning, they'd ease out in that field, get them a bite, and they'd ease on back to bed. And then late in the evening, here they'd be, you know, and they'd be out there, you know, till after dark. And they're there every day, you know, from the middle of October up through the first part of November. The first time, the first morning that I went in there to hunt it. It was November 1st or November 2nd. I got sat down in the blind and just started cracking daylight. And as soon as it cracked daylight, I could see one of the fawns out in the food plot with me. I thought, well, you know, mama's around here somewhere. And sure enough, I hear some does running around in the woods and hear a buck grunting. And here comes the whole clan of them trotting right out in the field, the whole group of does. And here comes this really nice 10 point and uh i screwed around and managed not to kill him um <laughs> but that plan just almost worked beautifully oh, <laughs> but, good um, sometimes. <laughs> you know it's uh it's one of those things that uh you know um the like I say all, all the pieces of the puzzle came together except killing that big deer with a bow and arrow and sometimes that's just the hardest part of it mm-hmm.
0: so. gosh that's the truth <laughs> You mentioned a couple different times that you you were getting pictures of these deer and, and maybe tracking these does or getting nighttime pictures of bucks. How exactly are you using trail cameras at that time of year, both leading into November and then once, you know, there actually starts to be some of that riding activity? Are you using it just to keep tabs of daylight activity or specific bucks? Uh, how are you doing that?
3: Well, you know, you'll probably notice as I'm talking about hunting year-round, the common denominator in in my deer hunting almost year-round, man, is food. Um, and that's probably because we're hunting, you know, on such small properties. Um, I like to really hunt the fringes of stuff, and so and that's where I put a lot of my food is kind of on the fringes of that, you know, of that bedding cover. And that keeps me from getting in there deep. You know, like I like to have all of my food plots and my trail cameras, as many as I can to where I can drive to them, whether it's in my truck or on a tractor, and I can just get out and check them and get back in, and I don't have to walk through a bunch of stuff and scare a bunch of deer off. So, you know, that's that's where I keep my cameras. It doesn't matter if it's in the early season or during the rut. You know, I don't like to, you know, I put cameras over scrapes, and, you know, yeah, you might get that one awesome picture of a buck on a scrape, but, man, I scare the hell out of bucks over scrapes with trail cameras. <laughs> and I, I've come to realize that, you know, yeah, that, that scrape is going to be a great place to get a picture, but it's probably not going to be the place you're going to kill that deer most of the time. And, you know, my my trail camera scouting has been better served by keeping those cameras on the food plots and, and on the bait sites, you know, where I'm seeing these does, uh, you know. And, and yeah, uh, you can definitely, there are times when, you know, Say Halloween, you pull a trail camera card and daylight pictures of does and little bucks, and then oh man, there he is! You know, three o'clock in the afternoon, he's coming out there to check it, and yeah, that's definitely my cue to get in there and uh, and hunt that deer. So, um, you know, that's that's kind of my thing year round. You know, I, I think um, sometimes we kind of fall into the trap of, of over analyzing what we need to be doing as deer hunters. You know, do we need to get back off in the in the timber and, and in the funnels and hunt staging areas and all this? We're Really, you know, kind of the the whole formula of food does bucks. Um, it, it works year round, so including the rut. So.
0: so true, so true. So, being the hunting editor, the hunting editor at Field and Stream, <laughs> <laughs> I imagine, and especially I guess with all your time leading up to this, I imagine you've got to meet and speak and learn from a tremendous number of really, really, really successful hunters. And I kind of wonder, given that huge sample size of of hunting and expertise is there anything you've found that most of these guys or girls have in common the very best hunters is there anything that you could look to now over all your years and say yeah this they all had this or they all did that anything come to mind
3: time in the stand in a high quality area absolutely um you cannot kill a big deer or any deer in a place where they don't live and that's just that's just the way it is man um you know so you have to have an area where you know that those deer live and and then beyond that you have to put in the time um and and i and it's not just a matter of going every day it's not that but you have to put in the time when the when the time is best for you mm-hmm. on the days when that wind is right uh you better be in a tree somewhere um and and that's just you know that's that's one of the you know, it's easy for me to say because, you know, as a part of my job, I can, you know, I I, I do need to go hunt a lot. And, you know, I, I'm able to, you know, cut out of work every afternoon at 2 o'clock during deer season and go get in the stand. And, and I understand a lot of guys can't do that. And so, you know, what I tell folks is that, look, you know, um, the days when you think, well, it's it's too hot or, you know, the moon phase isn't right or this and that, um Man, you still got to go. I've killed bucks in howling wind. I've killed them in the rain. I've killed them when it was ninety-five degrees. I've killed deer under about every weather condition you can imagine. Yeah, my favorite time is a is a high pressure, still cold morning, uh, just like everybody else. But you know, the fact is, you have to you know you have to spend time in the tree because this is a even when things are absolutely perfect, um, you know. If you're only going to hunt one morning, you, you're going out there and, and still the odds are against you that that big deer is going to walk by within bow range, and so you just you just have to keep going. And I and I think that's uh, that's kind of the same with with every type of hunting, but with, but especially with bow hunting whitetails. Um, I, I think that's you know those are the those are the two key ingredients. And again, I, you know I'll emphasize that at that, that time uh, it does, you know definitely don't go sit you know if you've only got 70 acres to hunt, don't go sit in a tree when the wind is flat wrong you know just because brantley said you need to be in the tree it's not that it's (laughs) when, when the conditions are right you need to be out there so and when they're wrong uh you need to be somewhere else so whether it's you know on another farm that maybe is not as good but you've got permission to hunt on or a piece of public ground uh you know just go somewhere where the conditions are good for you to hunt that day
0: yeah. I'm really glad you brought that up. That's such a key point. Um, you know, I'm a huge advocate and believer in the idea of of waiting until the right conditions, the right time to go into your best spots. But at the same time, to your point, you want to be in a tree still. So it's great to have like burner stands, I kind of call them, like yeah. spots you can go to where you can still get out and hunt. But when the conditions aren't right, you're not you know risking ruining your best spots, but you're still mm-hmm. out there still have a chance. And I think that's, yep. that's a good idea for people to try to go into a season. Yeah. Make sure you've got your good spots and your main hunting property, but try to prepare for those off days too, when it's not going to be ideal to go into your best spots, but have a secondary spot you can go to.
3: That's exactly. Little... Man, I, you know, I wait all year to go deer hunting. I love it. Um, and the afternoons when the weather's pretty, uh, and the wind is not right for one of my, you know, the stand that I really want to hunt, you know, it kills me to see, sit at the house and not go and you know i would much rather go sit in a burner stand as you call it or you know whatever it is even if it's a stand where i'm just like man i'm gonna go out and shoot a doe this afternoon um fact is I've I've had a lot of hunts where I was going out to shoot a doe on a given day or just really going out, you know, almost like an observation stand just to see what I would see and end up killing the deer. Um, One of the biggest bow kills I've ever, you know, that I've ever gotten. He's sitting here on the wall in my office, big old, pretty heavy eight point. Um, I killed him one afternoon in September. I went out uh, back when I was working for a fishing magazine. I cut out of work just a little bit early um and i did not get in the tree till about six o'clock and i hunted just kind of the corner of this big cut cornfield um and got up as high in that tree as i could stand it so i could see the whole field and i was really just wanting to to glass this field and just see what came out for the afternoon and this bachelor group of bucks came out probably 400 yards away and damn if they didn't walk a beeline straight to my tree and end up right under me right at dark and i killed one of them and it was on the one hand, it was, yeah, I was lucky that they came right to me, but on the other hand, you know, I could have stayed home, could have stayed at work, and, you know, I'd have never seen that deer. Yeah.
0: So. Gosh, one of the things I hate the most is when I make the mistake of saying, ah, it's not the right night to hunt, and I just stay in the house, and then I, from behind my house, in both sides of my house, actually, I can see crop fields or food plots and, and wide open areas, so inevitably, I'm checking the window every, like, five, ten minutes, and then when I see a bunch of deer or buck, I just get so upset there's there's nothing worse than that feeling so drive you nuts yeah oh yeah drive you absolutely nuts so we just you just shared with us you know what would be some of these key consistent things that the best hunters have on the flip side from everything you've seen and heard given your career are there any things that you find are there any mistakes i guess that you find being made the most often either by others or by yourself that are kind of just chronic mistakes that we bow hunters keep making for some reason
3: oh yeah yeah man there's a lot of things that uh you know we we all do um i think one of the uh one of the things that i'm seeing in this area in particular and it's um you know it's kind of symptomatic we talked about all the good press that uh that kentucky is getting these days um you know it's uh it's a popular whitetail spot man and it's uh it's 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 obviously created a a market for Kentucky deer hunting, and so we've got some very successful outfitters in this area that have leased up a lot of the ground that was formerly uh you know formerly available for uh me and my buddies to hunt and um you know it's uh i don't i don't really blame the outfitters. I know a lot of those outfitters and they're good guys and they're hard working. Um but uh but you know the fact is they've uh you know they've driven the lease prices up so high that um you know it it, it can be hard for, you know, for the average guy to get in there and find a place to hunt. And I think because of that, you know, it, it, it kind of uh I don't know, it almost kind of puts some guys into a deer depression. They think, "Man, you know, there's there's nothing left out there to hunt, you know, I, I don't I don't have anywhere to go because Uh, you know, because everything's leased up, and, and, you know, I think what guys end up doing is focusing on that rather than either focusing on the ground that they do have to hunt or knocking on doors looking for more ground to hunt. You know, even though this is a really popular area, uh, you know, for outfitted hunts, um, there's still plenty of farmers out there uh, that'll still let you hunt um, and will especially still let you hunt if you give them a little cash. There's still leases to be found. And so or, you know, you can you can do what you know, what Michelle and I did and save up your money for a down payment on a farm. Yeah, hell we're gonna be in debt for a long time, but uh <laughs> you can't take it with you and hunting ground's important to us. So that's what that's what we decided to spend our money on. So I think that's part of it is um you know, the, one of the big mistakes is, is not you know, working hard enough or early enough to, you know, either secure new ground or to make sure the ground that you're hunting is the best that it can be. Um, that's, uh, that's, that's one of them that, you know, one big mistake that I see. And, and, you know, when you talk about, um, you know, obsessing over things, like if I obsess over anything, it's over how my food plots are looking, you know, Mm and, um, you know, getting new ones in the ground and, uh, you know, making sure I can, you know, spray the grass out of them and keep them mowed and all that stuff. And that's, so that's, that's one big thing. Um, you know, I think the other thing too, you know, just kind of, you know, if you're talking about bow hunters in particular, um, and take a drink of water there, this is something that I, that I certainly, uh, have fallen into. I had a really bad season a couple of years ago. Um, you know, and I, I, you and I have talked about it before um in which I shot a couple of deer and, and lost them and uh you know that's that's you know it's a reality for hunting with anything i mean gun or bow um you know every now and then you're gonna shoot a deer and not recover it, and man it just sucks um and But where I made the mistake a few years ago was rather than learn from it and recover from it and move on and let it get into my head and what happens when you mess up? You're going to mess up on some deer when you're hunting with a bow. That's just the way it is. Whether you miss them or don't get a shot or spook them when you're drawing back or, or hit them and don't find them, you, you have to recover from those mistakes and not let it get into your head. And you have to remember at that moment of truth, man, this is a game of inches and you have to settle that pin and, and so for me, uh, the takeaway lesson in all of that was you know, I'm a pretty good shot with a bow. Um, I've probably shoot more than the average bow hunter and i'm you know constantly tweaking on my equipment and and working on my equipment and and you know as part of my role at field and stream you know I, I do a lot of gear testing and so you know i love to shoot long range here in the backyard I practice you know out to eighty ninety yards pretty often and um... you know there for a while i, I kind of had it in my head well man i can kill a deer at fifty yards and some people can um, but the fact is, uh, you are probably at about 20% of your efficiency, uh, you know, when you're shooting at a deer compared to shooting at a target. Um, that adrenaline just does crazy things to you. And it's not only the adrenaline, it's the shooting stances that you find yourself in out in the woods, whether you're sitting on a ground blind stool or up in a stand, you know, your are turned funny, it's getting dark, uh, you know, the, the angles are sharp and man, that adrenaline is just raging and it, it messes you up. And so, you know, I, I kind of took a step back last year in particular, and I'm like, you know what, um, I'm not shooting at a deer with a bow anymore unless he's 30 yards or closer. And, man, it didn't cost me really any opportunities at all last year and uh, just, you know, just made the deer that I, you know, that I did take a shot at. I knew I was going to kill him, and I did. And that, um, you know, I, I think that's something that, uh you know I won't say every bow hunter needs to needs to do a better job at it, but it was something that i you know I kind of needed that reality check for myself that you know hey we're we're bow hunting out here to get close to him and uh that's uh that's what I needed to do a better job of and you know make sure that uh that when that moment of truth comes that i that I make the very best shot that i can and if I have any doubts, just don't shoot, let him go, and you're probably going to get another chance at him
0: so. yeah that's that's such a great kind of message because especially today in the hunting media and stuff, we see so many people taking super long shots, maybe with a rifle or with a bow. Um, and you know, in some cases, or at least in the cases that you see on TV, they make the shot. And I think it gives the impression to a lot of folks on the other end of the TV watching that, you know, I should be able to do that too. And even if you are a terrific long range shot on the range, just like you said, Will, uh, things are different out in the field. And I think, uh, Gosh, it's it's always better to err on the conservative side because you're you know, this is a this is a living animal. Um mm-hmm. I wouldn't want to take um you know, take too many chances with that with that kind of responsibility. But Well I here's mean, what
3: you don't see on T V. You don't see you see the deer that those guys kill. You don't see the ones that, that they shoot at from sixty yards that exactly. they hit in the hands and they get away, or the ones that they miss. Um, and buddy, I'm here to tell you, I've worked in the hunting business a long time, been around a lot of TV folks, and, and I should say, uh, am good friends with a lot of those guys. And I don't mean to just disparage the TV guys, but what I am getting at is, uh, they have the, uh, uh, you know, the luxury of of not showing what they don't want to show. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, things happen to them just like they happen to you and me. And you know, yeah, you, you take four 60 yard shots at a deer, you're probably going to kill one of them. But what happens on those other three? Exactly. Yeah.
0: yeah. To this point, and this is actually, I, you, I know you've got to run here in a couple of minutes, and I've got one last question for you, and it, and it ties in very nicely with what we just mentioned here. Um, you know, writing for Field and Stream, now being an editor at Field and Stream, which is one of the absolute largest brands within the hunting world, um, and representatives of the hunting world to the rest of the public. Um, I think, you know, whether it be Field and Stream or anyone in the outdoor media or really any hunter, any average guy or girl hunter out there, we all represent hunting to the non-hunting public. Um, I guess I'm curious about what your thoughts are, though, on how we're doing as the media in representing what hunting is, what we do, and, you know, the perception that the non-hunting public has of that. Are we doing a good job? Do things need to change? From your perspective with Field and Stream? Where do we need to go in the hunting media and then as average hunters, what can we do differently too?
3: You know, I think the hunting media is doing a doing a pretty decent job. Um, you know, you, you look uh you know, and I, I'm not saying that just to just to toot my own horn or, or toot your horn, but um, you know, the I, I think there there is a uh you know, a a pretty strong, you know, conservation and family focus and a focus on getting new people into the woods. Uh, throughout the hunting media you see it mentioned all the time on the TV shows uh, you know in the magazines things like that um, you look at uh, you know you, you you look at the rate of, uh, of female hunters in the woods for example it's higher than it's ever been I don't think it's any coincidence at all that you've had some really good role models like, you know, Tiffany Likoski and Melissa Bachman and and folks like that who've done a really good job at making hunting seem accessible to to the ladies who would really like to try it, and and maybe they never have tried it. And so, you know, yeah, I I think on that point, uh, we have done a pretty good job. Um, I think you know maybe a couple of years ago we might have gotten a little bit nutty with some of the big buck craze and that's probably uh fueled some things that aren't so healthy uh to the long term uh you know to the long term health of uh, of deer hunting and and really all kinds of hunting
1: uh,
3: you know when when the focus becomes more on the antlers than than on putting back strap on your table um to the average non-hunter, that's not cool, um, and you know I think we need to be cogniz- cognizant of that. Doesn't mean going out and killing every little buck you see, but it's just uh, it's just something we need to think about. You know, whenever we're focused so much on on score and and the age of a deer and things like that, you know, we need to remember that uh, you know if a guy shoots a deer, it's because that deer came out and he was excited about it and he wanted to fill his tag, and as so long as it's his tag and he did it legally, it's really not anybody else's business. You know what I mean? Um, now, so far as, you know, hunters in particular, you know, just kind of everyday hunters, um, I'll tie that into social media a little bit and kind of get on my soapbox, man. I think that is the biggest, I think that is the biggest threat, uh, facing hunting right now. Um, the environment that, um, that hunters have kind of created online, uh, toward one another. So often, it's just, man, it's just toxic. Um, you look at, uh, you know, for, for Field and Stream, or whenever I was working for Realtree, you post a story of a of a hunter that's been successful and killed a good deer, um, Posted it online, we do a story about it, and they, you know, and they're excited about it, and man, just immediately the people pile on to them saying you know, oh, well, they shot it with a crossbow, and that's not really hunting, or they shot it over bait, and that's not really hunting, or they shot it in a high fence, and not knowing whether or not they shot it in a high fence, and I'll say for the record, I don't think shooting a deer in a high fence is really hunting, but a lot of people just assume that if real tree's sharing it, or that field and stream's sharing it, and it's a big buck, that people shot it in a high fence, and hunters have just gotten to the point not all of them but a lot of them they've just gotten to the point where they're just mean to each other online and that has to stop because man that is not doing anybody any good and um you know it's just uh you hear the word infighting a lot um and, and people say oh we've got to do something about this we've got to stop the infighting and you can write about it until you're blue in the face and yet it doesn't stop so you know i uh I will continue to call people out on that and, and say that that is a big problem, um, and I, I think that's probably as symptomatic of our of our social media culture, you know, just as a nation as it is just hunters. But uh, man, it's one of those things we've got to get a handle on because it's a real problem.
0: So true, and social media really, like you said, it's it's such an enabler for you know these types of behaviors that probably where they're always within the hunting culture or our entire United States culture, I suppose. But once you have this tool to put stuff out there online anonymously or without having to be face-to-face to to someone, very quickly things can spiral into a pretty negative place.
3: Yep, yep, absolutely.
0: Well, well, I know you've got to hit the road, so uh, I just want to thank you so much for taking the time to join us here. And I guess before I let you go, really quickly, is there anything that our listeners should be keeping an eye out for from field and stream, or coming up on the website that you want to direct them to, or, or to take a look at soon.
3: Yeah, man, our subscription renewal notices. Keep an eye out for those and renew. Keep me in the job. <laughs> Perfect,
0: <laughs> good advice. No,
3: man, we've got some awesome stuff coming up. I'm working on a, I'm working on a big land management feature right now for August. As a matter of fact, I'm late um <laughs> <laughs> gotta get that thing turned in but uh interviewed some guys like uh oh i don't know some guys you probably have heard of them before eric long and craig mm-hmm. harper those nice. guys know a little bit about growing food plots and stuff so um you know i i get, get to talking to them they tell me uh tell me about you know everything that i thought i knew that i really didn't so <laughs> um so yeah, you know, we've we've got uh, we've got some cool stuff coming up. Um, you know, it just uh Field and Stream staff and, and outdoor life's uh you know, their their staff too. I mean, really, um, you know, across the board the editors, the uh the uh, the designers, our our art team and uh and our freelance contributors, man, I'm always just amazed that you know, you think year after year, like, what else is there to be said about deer hunting or catching a bass on a topwater plug? And, <laughs> and somehow we find it and, you know, make cool stuff out of it and tell good stories. And uh, I I continue to be proud of, uh, of working with that team. And, yeah, we, we've got some good stuff coming out this fall. So awesome. So, yeah, like I said, renew those subscriptions so you can be sure to see it.
0: Perfect. Well, I've been a lifelong subscriber myself, and I'll be keeping it going because, like you said, uh, you guys are doing terrific work, and, uh, man, I really enjoy it. So everyone listening, make sure you do get those subscriptions in and subscribe to Outdoor Life, too. You'll see some stuff from me coming up here soon, too. So, uh, Will, thank you so much, and uh, good luck this summer and fall.
3: All right, Mark. You too, buddy. we will talk soon.
0: Thanks a lot. Bye-bye. See ya. All right, and with that, we'll wrap things up. A few quick reminders before we go, though. First, like I mentioned at the top, be sure to check out 100% Wild, our new podcast. Secondly, if you haven't yet, could you take a quick second to leave us a rating or review on iTunes? It would mean a ton, and it helps a lot. So thank you to those who already have done that. And we also need to thank our partners who helped make this podcast possible. So big thank you to Sitka Gear, Trophy Ridge, Bear Archery, Redneck Blinds, Huntera Maps, Ozonics, Carbon Express, Maven Optics, and the Whitetail Institute of North America. And finally, thank you for joining us. I really appreciate it, and I hope you enjoyed this chat with Will as much as I did. And until next time, stay wired to hunt. Outdoor Adventure won't wait for engine problems.
1: Hey, if you guys like to cook outdoors, and you ought you should check out the Weber Slate Rust-Resistant Griddle. So this is a carbon steel cooktop that's safe for metal tools. It's pre-seasoned with food-safe oils and ready to cook on right out of the box. It's the griddle that stays ready, not rusty. This griddle heats evenly edge to edge, reaching all the way up to 500 degrees. Get fired up for your new Weber Slate rust-resistant griddle.